When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. In aesthetic theory, Theodore Adorno remarks, quote, Art is the social antithesis of society, not directly deducible from it. The constitution of art's sphere corresponds to the constitution of an inward space of men as a space of their representation, unquote. In the past few years, autonomy has taken a greater significance as the contemporary art has been made more and more subservient to the market and the neoliberal cultural establishment. Thus, the return to autonomy presents attempt to recover ways to restore emancipatory potential of art. My guest today, Grant Kessler, however, argues that autonomy is deeply riddled with the contradictions, while he acknowledges a lengthy historical sway of the, this concept over the understanding of art and the shifting relationship between art and revolutionary praxis. In the sovereign self, Aesthetic Autonomy from Enlightenment to the Avant-Garde, published by Duke University Press in 2023, Kisser traces autonomy from Enlightenment to the historical Avant-Garde and the two contemporary artistic practices and art criticism, while exploring its inadequacies as well as its potential for liberatory politics. In this book, and Companion book Beyond the Sovereign Self, Aesthetic Autonomy from Out the Avant-Garde to the Socially Engaged Art, Kessler shows how an alternative theoretical paradigm embodied by socially engaged art can afford greater possibilities for critical practice. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Art. I'm Kaveh Rafi, and I'm excited to join Grant Kessler to discuss his recent book, The Sovereign Self, uh, aesthetic Autonomy from the Enlightenment to the Avant-Garde. Kessler is a professor of art history and the founding editor of Field, a journal of socially engaged art criticism. He is author of numerous books, including Art, Activism, and Oppositionality, Essays from After Image, 1998, Conversation, Pieces, Community, and Communication in Modern Art, 2004 and 2013, the One and Many Contemporary Collaborative Art in the Global Context, 2011, and uh, many more uh, 
His essays also have been published in several editorial volumes, Art in Theory, the best in the world, uh, an anthology of changing ideas, 2020, and Companion to the Public Art, 2016, and uh, so many more others, uh, uh, work and publication. Hi, Grant. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much, uh, Kave, for having me. It's a delight. I'm delighted to talk to you. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, thank you. Uh, probably our listeners are familiar with your scholarship. But to set off the conversation, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you come to write this book, uh, The Sovereign Self? Sure. Uh, you know, I've been um, writing in one way or the other about uh, art, contemporary art, but especially activist or socially engaged art practice for, for you know quite a long time, back to the 80s, really. And so I've had a long-term interest in the topic, obviously. <clears throat> And uh, I think the thing that led me, there's a couple of things that led to the most recent set of books uh, out, out of that longer commitment. And uh, it, it, one of those is, um, gosh, if you go back to that, when I first started writing about activist engaged art practices, what have you, in the 80s, 90s, into the 2000s, they were really very much tangential to mainstream art history and criticism and theory. Very few people writing about the work, and those that did were usually kind of dismissive. There were a handful of important critics, obviously, at least in the U.S. context. Examples might be uh, you know, Lucy Lepard, people like that. They were real trailblazers. But they're, they're, the mainstream art world was, by and large, fairly indifferent to this kind of practice. Now, that started to change, I would say, over the last 20 years. And uh, there's probably a variety of reasons for that, uh, which we can maybe get into a little bit later. Uh, but um, you started to see more and more maybe traditional art critics writing about, directly or indirectly, writing about this kind of practice. And so uh, out of that, a kind of a discourse emerged, which was a critical discourse that said certain kinds of activist or engaged practices fail for these reasons. And in the second book, I, I use Jacques Rossier as a kind of a test case of that. Like, what's the argument for why this can't, this work can't be art? What are the reasons for that? And so on. And it's usually, there's, a, there's an appeal to the aesthetic. And so I realized there was a certain repetition or uniformity to the criticisms. They were usually criticisms of this practice that were structured around these oppositions, aesthetics versus ethics. Uh, disruption versus uh, affirmative experience, uh, dissensus versus consensus. Almost like it's an uh, there's an algorithm at work, <laughs> like our hermeneutic square, where you have to identify a binary and then situate what it is art in opposition to what is not art. And it had come to be, just in my experience, it was quite often these kind of activist practices that were being situated in the not art category. So that really led me and, and to wonder what, one, why is that discursive structure so uniform across many different thinkers? I mean, you can see, see it in Rancière, you see a strong element of it in Adorno's work, and then the, re, the recent revival of interest in Adorno and a number of other contemporary figures. I said, what is, what is underneath that? So why is it so persistent in the way it's structured? And, and from my perspective, problematic uh, in certain ways. 
at any rate, I was interested in, I guess, excavating the genealogy in Foucauldian terms of this discursive structure. And so a lot of the work in this book is devoted to trying to reveal the pre-conscious horizons of normative models of the aesthetic in contemporary art theory. And that's linked to the second reason, I, I suppose, for writing the books, which is I had had a longstanding interest in the aesthetic. And, and the aesthetic, uh, not as a placeholder for beauty or the conventional work of art, but the aesthetic is a fully complex political discourse, which is how it originates, right? The aesthetic begins as the science of sensory knowledge in the Enlightenment, in the, in the European tradition, and only later gets associated so single-mindedly with art. And I felt that there was something uh, in that history that, was, that, that I wanted to excavate and salvage and draw attention to that often gets left out of these discussions. Uh, so, so that was the the other piece of it, and, and in particular, it has to do with it, it, the nature of the political, the relation between the one and the many, uh, the self and other, the role of the body and embodied it as a form of political knowledge, uh, and so on. And I relating to that, I was interested in this idea, and I had this intuition that there was another version of modernity that one could potentially construct. And it would be a more capacious modernity that could deal with events and practices outside the Eurocentric canon. And so I was also looking for a mechanism. That's why I spend time in the first section of the book talking about the ambivalent relationship of the Enlightenment to colonialism, because on the one hand, the Enlightenment is the very engine of colonial expropriation. On the other hand, there's this robust anti-colonialist tradition, the Herder and Diderot and so on, utterly denouncing it. They thought, what a fascinating point of tension. There's something there that I wanted to get at. And so that was the other piece of it was to dig down a little more deeply into that history and, and hopefully find some, uh, some insights that would enlighten, provide some enlightenment or, or deeper understanding of contemporary practices as well. Yeah, that's uh, something that I really like about this book. I mean, the book uh, sits this complex, right? Uh, and it's it's not just one way unilateral narrative of you know en enlightenment, uh, either as good or bad, uh, as colonizer or you know emancipatory. It's more deeper complexities in different uh, aspects, which very much I think uh, helpful uh, to understand also the term uh, autonomy not just in the Western context. I think that's also useful to think about this, this concept in other contexts, non-Western contexts as well. And this deep tie with polity, uh, which is uh, very much fascinating in this sense. My question is uh, very much regarding the autonomy and how this concept uh, came up about to be and conceptualized in, in Enlightenment. You know, when we are speaking of autonomy, uh, the first thing comes to mind is individual autonomy and the sovereignty over one's self and action beyond external coercion, or as uh, uh, Emmanuel Kant would, you know, uh, put one's release from their self-incurred totalage. Uh, yet the focus of the book, as you mentioned, is aesthetic autonomy, uh, which is 
to some extent, you, you can uh, theorize as it's grounded on the distinction between art and life or you know, politics and society. In the book, you make this connection between these notions of autonomy and how they are inherently linked. Maybe you can tell us more about uh, these connections, uh, you know, since enlightenment. Sure. Um, you mean around the notion of autonomy specifically? Yeah, I'm thinking that uh, you know, as you discuss in a, uh, you know introduction and the chapters, early chapters in a bro uh, broader sense. Yeah. That, so, uh, it, you know, as I as I point out in the book, it's not something I figured out. I've learned it from people who are write on the history of philosophy, the, the concept of autonomy uh, that that informs the aesthetic begins in, in political discourse, in the natural law tradition, in Fufendorf and Grotius, and a whole number of writers uh, active in the period of, the, of kind of early mon modernism in Europe. And uh, I mean, it's originally used in that tradition, goes back to ancient Greece, but then it gets revived in the 1500s. But it gets revived at this moment, right, of, of, uh, of incipient uh, desacralization and gr growing erosion, not it's gradual, but, but, but it exists, a kind of a growing erosion of absolutism. Of course, it's temporally differential. It erodes more quickly in some places than others, but it's part of an evolving discourse of it's intended to challenge absolutist forms of political and religious and cultural authority. Uh, you know, the great chain of being. Uh, you have to obey the king because the king is the second in line to God's authority. And then that line of transmission of authority extends all the way down to families and husbands over wives and over children and even in the latin version of the great chain of being it's like there's a hierarchy of plants versus rocks and fire like this whole fixed structure that says you have to do what you're told by the one person that exists in a higher position and you that starts to come under uh, critique and attack and so Autonomy, right? It's literally autonomos. I mean, nomos is like comparable, I think about the word norms or conventions. So auto means you give them to yourself. I'm going to give my, instead of the rules being dictated to me by the king or by the church, I'm going to come up with my own norms, my own rules, my own conventions. So that's the appeal for freedom. That's the desire to declare one's personal independence and freedom from an external compulsion or coercion. Uh, but of course, the challenge is that norms or conventions are in a social system are social. That is, it doesn't work for me to say my norm is I don't have to stop at stop signs. I'm just decided I'm going to give myself that law, right? Or we're going to have accidents. So how do we negotiate the relationship between autonomy as a kind of a a, 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 a very powerful assertion of individual independence. No one can tell me what to do. From the fact that a society populated by people, all of whom believe that, could potentially descend into chaos. And this is especially pronounced because the part of the impetus for the emergence of political autonomy is precisely the the early stage uh, rise of notions of possessive individualism and mercantile capitalism and bourgeois uh, kind of a bourgeoisie in its very early stages, right? Pushing back against uh, absolutist authority 
And what comes along with that is a, is a foregrounding of radical individual freedom. So, so you, you have a version of autonomy that is freedom from external coercion, but then the uh, flip side is a freedom uh, power over external others. And so that's, that tension is kind of baked into uh, a notion of autonomy, uh, of how do we reconcile the relationship between uh, a desire to be free from external control versus the, the fact that the, the solution to it that we're offered is to, ex, is to embrace a form of being that precisely exists to control others, which is the ethos of possessive individualism that then it becomes the rationalization for the colonial exploitation of the, for by Europe of the rest of the world that we are entitled to take what you have, this whole kind of form of the self. So that the, those tensions are, are kind of built into an early stage at the same time. The, once this migrates into the aesthetic, there's a shift. So if the, if the contradiction is between a notion, of, uh, a notion of the self that is either protected and safe and independent or a self that exploits and, 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 and commodifies the external world, literally to the level of possessing the bodies of others, how do we construct a society in that in those terms because the aesthetic is at the same time uh, based on a fairly powerful critique of the negative or deleterious effects of capitalism like look at uh, Kant why does Kant focus so much on disinterest in the critique of judgment because he's very aware he writes about this the kind of damaging effects of self-interest uh, Schiller does it the entire German Romantic tradition is full of philosophers talking about how destructive it is to be selfish and self-interested and to exploit others. And so the aesthetic becomes a kind of a, a, a space that gets carved out of existing political discourse in which a critique of capitalism, at a kind of a basic level, starts to be articulated. So now you have this really interesting situation. Okay, so... We have a new version of the self, the autonomous self, who's also the sovereign self, but that's going to produce certain contradictions and tensions. Uh, how do we resolve those? What? How do we move towards a society that will not descend into chaos? Well, we need to do something to transform human consciousness so that we are less prone to this kind of possessive individualistic behavior and more open to... Uh, a dialogical notion of the self that is formed at the interstices of self and other and doesn't simply see others as enemies to be destroyed or or commodities to be consumed or what have you. And so the aesthetic becomes, in a sense, the answer to that question and provides the hope that we have the ability to both be completely free, but to self-regulate in such a way that as we're exercising our complete freedom, without any external coercion, we're nonetheless magically going to not impinge on someone else's absolute freedom. That's the kind of hope that the aesthetic offers. So, um, so it, it's, uh, it, but then, then there's a, the, the structure that the aesthetics, uh, is going to take at that point gets complicated because if you look at, uh, you look at Kant and the early notion of the aesthetic and the, in the critique of judgment, uh, Kant will say, um, uh, uh Aesthetic. Well, let me back up a little bit and lead into that because you ask about some of the thinkers. All right. So 
that's the the kind of job in a way of the aesthetic in the in the uh, in the Enlightenment is to reconcile the the tension between these versions of autonomy as individualism and autonomy as sovereignty over others. So when that discursive system kind of migrates into the aesthetic, it brings it carries along with it this kind of incipient critique of the conditions that encourage that kind of self, this appropriated notion of the self. And so how are we going to change people's consciousness to make people less prone to the deleterious effects of in possessing individualism? Uh, aesthetic experience will do that. And for Kant, it does it to what it calls the harmony of the faculties. And the harmony of the faculties works this way. Um, uh, typically, when we experience something in the world, uh, in the first critique, uh, we see a thing through our senses, and our senses provide that information through the imagination. The imagination bundles up all those sensory perceptions into what it calls a manifold. And then that manifold is 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 given over to the understanding. And the understanding has concepts, uh, a priori, not entirely a priori, but let's say socially conventional concepts. Oh, I see a, an animal. And then I have the concept dog. If I project dog onto that animal, I know that's what that is. So I've, I've kind of shoehorned the kind of complexity of, of the lived world into a concept in order to get, gain knowledge over it. That's how scientific knowledge evolves, is the, the, this incredibly, increasingly complex ensemble of concepts that we start to develop in our minds. And so we see things, and over time, we develop more and more uh, complex understanding of the world conceptually. Uh, but that involves a kind of legislation in which the imagination is, it'll, literally we use that term, um, the imagination is legislated by the understanding, which is a higher power. So we have another hierarchy. We have reason at the very top, then the understanding and the imagination. The imagination is closest to sensory embodiment, closest to our senses, closest to the world. The further away we get from the world into the realm of reason, the more metaphysical, the more transcendental, and so on, experience becomes. And so what happens in a normal encounter is you project all these concepts onto a thing and gain knowledge that gives you an operational ability to manipulate things in the world. That's the first critique in a way. That's the basis of scientific knowledge. But in the aesthetic experience, you're not looking at things in the world so you can extract value cognitively or economically. You're just looking at them as, as things that you don't, you just, just opportunities for your mind to be at play. So works of art are good examples, although Kant doesn't talk much about works of art, he talks more about like landscape gardens and seashells. But so in an aesthetic encounter, instead of the imagination being in a way controlled by the understanding with its laws, its norms, and say, okay, okay, understanding, I'll project that, that concept. The imagination effortlessly of its own accord packages up sensory impressions in a conceptually coherent manner so that the, it just hands them over to the understanding. Without the understanding, you have to do the heavy lifting of projecting concept. What that means is the individual self, at the most basic level of who we are, at the level of the body and the senses, is, 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 uh, has a predisposition to subordinate, it subordinate itself to a higher law. 
in this case, the law of the understanding. And so that reassures us that at the most basic level of our, our of ourselves, we will obey an external law of some kind. We don't have to be coerced. We'll do it naturally in some way. And so that's what bridges the first and second critique. That's why the third critique is the bridge, because the first critique, you can make a really good argument about why you know, you need to use concepts to gain knowledge of the world and build a dam and everything else. Second critique is about uh, practical reason and morality and so on. And that's the reason, not understanding, reason giving moral law to the self. But why would the self obey the reason? The reasons, I don't care what reason says I should follow the categorical imperative and not hurt other people. I don't care. What's my motivation? Well, third critique reassures us that we do have that motivation to be good selves, but it is at this stage of humanity not fully developed. So it, it can't, we can't yet risk trying to actualize, for example, social and political transformation because we are still imperfect. We have an, an innate capacity, but it is as yet undeveloped in most people. And the job of the aesthetic, of aesthetic encounters, is to coax that, coax that out, is to nurture it, nurture it, to build it up in us so that we become more uh, open, empathetic human beings. That's its job. But for it to perform that job, it can have no direct practical uh, uh, connection to things in the world, practical experiences in the world. It has to be fully at the level of the individual contemplating the cognitive operations of their own mind. And from that, intuiting what's called the census communis. And the census communis, or, or Gemeinsen, common sense, is our intuition that we're all connected to other people, that other people are not our enemies or, or commodities or what have you. That's what we intuit when we have an aesthetic encounter. So um, anyway, that's a, long, <laughs> that's a longer answer than you might have needed, but um, I can go on if you want about Schiller or Hegel or what have you, but that's kind of the fact. That's the foundation stone, if you will, I think. Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, actually, that also ser serves as this, uh, perhaps a platform to think these concepts. Uh, specifically, like, I, I, it's interesting to me uh, regarding the overall Kant's project. Uh, he, he tries to, to do, I mean, not go into the politics. His, his theory is not much, you know, his books, morality, you know, uh, epistemology, but not much about political thinking, although there are you know, short essays about peace and others, but he tries perhaps to, uh, say, circumvent or, 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 or find maybe the, create the shortcut uh, between this, perhaps the tension, specifically, as you mentioned, like, uh, this uh, the, during this eighteenth, uh, nineteenth century, maybe uh, as we see this kind of tension between individual and the state, uh, to some extent, which then uh, we can see in the work of Schiller, as you mentioned about the aesthetic state and how he tries to reconcile this tension, uh, and then uh, also Hegel uh, with this uh, ethic life and this whole idea about it, you know from the individual rights, the property right to the morality and ethical right, or maybe the reverse, because it's all grounded on, on the idea of the ethical right. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's very interesting. And shows us this, perhaps this project, uh, to, to what extent aesthetics actually in this political thinking, 
perhaps the, I, I would say this liberal thinking about this, you know, uh, connection between the individual and the state, uh, and uh, the, the Kant's, uh, you know, solution to to this this seems that, yeah, he tries to, yeah, he tries to to find the way to perhaps harmonize in in a way that this whole Rousseauian thinking that you know your inner morale, you know, ought to be kind of synced with this general will and this kind of making that connection to aesthetic. And it seems that aesthetic is at the core. Uh, so maybe uh, we can uh, also you know, talk a little bit about how then this idea was picked by the artist. And it seems that there is a role of artists. At least there is one correlate to the Kantian thinking is artists as a form giver, right? Like there is kind of playing this mediation role, perhaps. Uh, that's one, that might be one look, uh, although there, there can be other, you know, ways to uh, go from there. Uh, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious, what do you think about the entire artistic uh, movement, you know, after 19th century onward, thinking about the aesthetic and seems it's very much informed by some of these discussions? Yeah. Um... The, so let me see if I can sketch a little bit of this out. And, and one place to start the segue is with is really with Schiller and Hegel because, you know, Kant was um, uh, relatively sanguine about the possibilities of enlightenment and emancipation, and he was not a you know yeah famously says argue as much as you want about whatever you want but obey, but that's because of Frederick the Great and so on, but. You know, he advocated for reforms in education and so on. Uh, so he felt that, I think you could argue, I mean, I'm not a Kant expert by any extent, but I think you could argue, based on his writings, that he was uh, he was an advocate for a gradual enlightenment of society that would proceed on many fronts. He talks about uh, Buch und Geld, a commerce uh, uh, and learned uh, and so on. What ships when you get to Schiller is the incipience of that moment. And, and so with Schiller, and it's, I think, uh, was my, my argument in the book, as others have made, is that it's, it's, it's two things. It's his experience of the French Revolution and also his declining fortunes as a poet and playwright that kind of turn him against the idea of political change here and now. As he says, any form of political, any political reform is untimely that is premature, until we heal the divide within humanity. Um, that's in the Letters on Aesthetic Education of Man. And so it's at that point that you have the shift where it's not just the general enlightenment or whatever would become more human and more open and empathetic, but it's art and art alone that can produce this change, that can reprogram it's almost like the human self needs a new operating system. And the only thing that can provide it is going to be the experience, aesthetic experience of artwork. So that's a big shift into the exclusivity of art as the privilege and the artist as the privileged carrier, almost as a prefiguration of the kind of self everybody else needs to become to have a humane society so that we can kind of look upon art, the, the work of art, the artist and kind of see almost in an Hegelian sense, like the externalized ideal form of consciousness that we ourselves should one day uh, aspire to, to have a just society. But 
but that we cannot try to change society here and now until enough people have gone through an aesthetic education via exposure to plays and poems and so on and the book in what is emerging as the bourgeois public sphere of galleries and publishing houses and so on, uh, rising letter levels of literacy in Germany and so on. And this is also the other piece that comes out of Schiller is this apophatic or uh, definition by negation of art as opposed to early forms of popular culture, like in the Sturm und Drang movement and uh, talk about uh, Berger and a number of these figures who are talking about the poet should go down to the bleaching yard and talk to the people and speak their vernacular language. And and Schiller's completely opposed to that. It says that there's nothing to be learned in a sense, you know, that, that they're your inferiors. Their job is to learn from you. So we start to have now this fairly significant reassertion of a cognitive hierarchy between the artist, artist is what Adorno calls a deputy, and the work of art, and the large, broad population. Now, Hegel picks up on that as well. Early Hegel um, is, fair, again, fairly supportive of, of a kind of a detranscendentalizing of authority. That's what Abramas calls it, in which we start to understand that our true nature is to be, is to be defined in, in, in terms of our relation, open relationship to others. But that uh, that that early stage it's in his Yang period writings that starts to shift in his later work and by the time you get to philosophy of right he's kind of pretty critical of the public the public is a formless mass that you can't rely on him and so so the realization of geist or spirit of the absolute is really just meant to be our realization that we're connected to each other that we're we're human together. It's a, such a simple thing, and society's slowly been evolving towards that. That's this whole developmentalism, isn't it, uh, in terms of art? But that shifts again, and now you have a retranscendentalization in which the monarch now becomes the agent that reconciles contradictions in society, as opposed to what he seemed to be heading towards, which was a system in which the people would govern themselves, would be fully autonomous. They're not quite ready for freedom yet. And that deferral, not quite ready for freedom yet, that's going to be a, a key uh, concept right through the 19th century. And it, and it also migrates, as I argue, into certain forms of political theory. And we start to see this jump that I describe in which the party, the Communist Party typically, takes on this a similar role. The part the, you know, there's this Sartre quote I mentioned in the book, or where it's from the 1950s, where he says, you know, uh, people say the, the working class doesn't want the party. Well, who cares what the working class wants? Without the party, they're particles of dust. So this, I, 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 I sketch it out through a kind of a schema, right? Then there's two, two areas. The first area has to do with the ontology, in a way, of art, and that's the this, it's art and art alone that can preserve this consciousness. Now, for Schiller, it's a consciousness of our connectedness to others. For the avant-garde or vanguard tradition, it's going to be a revolutionary consciousness. But it's the same basic principle in terms of the social architecture. It's quite similar in the, in the singularity of the artist. And um, the second piece of that, prematurity in practice. We cannot yet be trusted to actually try to go into the world and and realize these utopian possibilities that the aesthetic discloses. And then the second piece is epistemological, and that is 
um, you know, the ex aesthetic experience can only unfold in the realm of semblance alone. It can't be something we do out in the quote-unquote world, but it has to remain locked within the kind of institutional sphere of the bourgeois art world. But at any rate, these concepts might, are what migrate, I argue, right, into the 19th century and get taken up in a number of different avant-garde movements and then kind of segue to some extent into vanguard political theory. So that's a, a very rough sketching out of the of the argument at least yeah thank you i think uh, as you mentioned this cognitive hierarchy very much also this framework seems very much rely this cognitive side rather than the embodiment and also related to this as you mentioned about displacement and deferral i think it seems that both as a strategy and also as a uh, perhaps a conceptual notion to reconcile some of these contradictions. Uh, uh, but they, in, in some way, they generate binary between the practice and uh, theory. Maybe if you can tell us also more, uh, you, you mentioned uh, also this, uh, the social context about the revolutions. Uh, just to, just to briefly sketching, you know, this, what's happened, uh, from let's say the, the the revolution to Paris Commune seems that Paris Commune also has this important impact in relation to how this artists and also the people thinking about this concept and then the Russian Revolution. Yeah, I'll, I'll do my best to do it in a way that it's, it's a lot of information, but I'll do my best to kind of reduce it to the, the kind of main points. Look, one of the things that happens uh, when you in the discourse of the aesthetic uh, early on, is a as I've already kind of alluded to, is a is a hierarchy between the artist and the broader public, and in that hierarchy, the broader public. I mean, you see this in Schiller. Schiller talks about the lower orders are driven by their base animal appetites, <laughs> and the civilized classes are all up in their hands, right? So the play drive is supposed to reconcile. We're divided. As opposed to ancient Greece, everything was a perfect hybrid. Now we're all divided. So the aesthetic experience will kind of heal that division. But already we see the hierarchy and in, in, in that hierarchy, uh, mind and body, uh, are, are, the knowledge of the body is almost always seen as secondary or, or um, inferior to the knowledge of the mind. I mean, that's why when you look at Hegel's version of the development of our history, it goes from the symbolic, which is all like large physical objects that rely on and the haptic contact of the body, well, where's the romantic at the end of the line? It's all, you know, painting and, and more cerebral, optical, and so on. So that division of mind and body then gets mapped onto the artist versus the broader public who are seen as more driven by their bodily knowledge and so on. And Adorno picks this up. I mean, the aesthetic theories uh, and minimum morality, a lot of the other books are full of these references to the masses driven. They they can't engage in desublimation. They're all driven by their, their kind of egos. There's no ego control there and so on and so forth. So that, that division, that hierarchy gets carried over into art in various ways at various points, which becomes, uh, you know, it becomes the rationale for explaining why revolutions keep failing. So, oh, we had 1789, but then Hegel says 1789, French Revolution failed because the masses were driven by their barbaric desire to 
realize the absolute prematurely. Uh, and then, uh, you know, uh, Paris Commune failed, Lenin says, because the communards were naively trying to build alternative social, non-hierarchical social structures in occupied Paris instead of doing the hard work of repelling the Prussian army plus the national French national army and so on. The masses are always failing. They're always not thinking critically. They're always not, like in this argument, right? They're always defined by their incapacity. And then that just gets carried right through, the, in a way, the Russian Revolution, after the Russian Revolution, which is the whole point of which was supposed to be for the Russian people to have autonomy and rule them, have their own elected leaders. And Lenin's very resistant to uh, democracy because he says after the Civil War, the proletariat's been declassed. That means they've lost class consciousness. That's what that means. It means that they can't rule themselves yet. They're not ready for freedom yet again. The, ma the masses are perennially disappointing leftist intellectuals. They're not for No, so what? What has to happen? A caretaker institution called the party has to rule in their stead. This kind of paternalistic notion of the party and so on. And, uh, and so, so that, that notion that revolution keeps failing because of the failure of the poor, or the working class, whatever signifier that gets used at different points, carries right through. It's a, you know, Adorno's argument. Uh, you know, you see that shift in Adorno's work between the early Frankfurt School, early 1930s. Uh, oh, the Frankfurt School is going to be a, a creative and intellectual resource for the German working class as they fight the fascists. To dialectical enlightenment, early uh, mid-1940s, like, forget about it. The working class is kind of a lost cause. And so uh, a critical theory has now taken on, it's a vessel that carries that revolutionary consciousness that the working class keeps failing to exhibit. And it's like, as he says in this interview with Horkheimer, a message in a bottle. There's no interlocutor to receive that message. That's what uh, Susan Buckhorst calls Marx without the proletariat, right? So there's no revolutionary agent. So revolutionary consciousness has to be displaced into some other form. It's like a currency. It's going to be translated into revolutionary theory or critical theory or avant or, you know, Samuel Beckett's plays or Schoenberg's, you know, 12-tone compositions or something is going to be, and it's, the something is usually bourgeois art or bourgeois intellectuals, which is, you know, the totality of most of the avant-garde and the vanguard. So they hold that revolutionary consciousness because the masses driven by their bodily appetites, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, are not quite ready in the hopes that one day the historical conditions will evolve sufficiently that that revolutionary truth that's being held in protective stasis can be broken open and what redistributed to them on the streets to put into practice. I don't know what the end game actually is meant to be, but that's kind of the implication. It's like Adorno says, uh, 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 art is uh, an advance on practice that has not yet begun. So that's where praxis and the and 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 uh, and theory or art get divine. That's the prematurity of praxis. So the argument I'm making in the book is that that's the exact same schema that you see that comes out of the Enlightenment. It's different because in the avant-garde, the goal of the schema of aesthetic experience is to engage in a kind of a uh, disruption of the viewers, bourgeois viewers' desire for transcendence, whereas in the Enlightenment, you're supposed to have an experience of beauty that gives you transcendence. You get to ignore your class specificity and imagine you're one with the, all of humanity. 
you know, the avant-garde reception discourse just inverts that. But again, the social architecture is almost identical. So that's, you know, in, in a quick way, that's how I think it migrates through into the 20th century. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because that's also explained why when I was reading the book, I was very much struck with this idea that perhaps there is not much distinction uh, between modernists and avant-garde as usually being claimed. Uh, just going back to Adorno, uh, you also mentioned about Ad Adorno's and Adorno's uh, understanding of autonomy. I think one of perhaps the you know most articulated notions, very much still today, you, you can see uh, it's still around uh, and very much influential, specifically because he's also critic of uh, cultural industry and so forth and connecting to uh, autonomy. Uh, and interestingly, in the book, also you bring this in, uh, into the context of Adorno's response to the student movement in the 60s. That those, those parts are very interesting, like uh, how he's reacting and uh, so forth. Um, so, again, it seems that a, this kind of a disconnection here also about what's going on uh, at the time and this Adorno's uh, uh, kind of uh, reservation. Uh, so, what, what do you think about the significance of uh, Adorno in terms of like uh, re repacking this idea of autonomy? Yeah, I mean, um, I think I mentioned earlier, early on, that there has re there's been a real revival of interest in Adorno in the last decade. You know, John Roberts uh, has a book called Revolutionary Time in the Avant-Garde, which is a super interesting book that, it, you know, basically makes the argument that we need an Adorno for today. because. And usually these arguments hinge on a similar presentation that for me is a little hyperbolic, that the market is so pervasive and overwhelming, there's no space outside the market, just accept in a way we have to accept it. I'm going to say that's what John Roberts says, but you see that and like you mentioned uh, Nicholas Brown has this, he has a version of that same argument, Hal Foster makes that argument, Ranciere makes a version of that argument. So we just have to give up on this idea that there's an out, in a way, an outside from which you could get outside the institutional art world to critique anything other than the institutional art world. That's the limit of critique, is you critique the institutional art world and we move on our merry way, preserving revolutionary consciousness for a St. Petersburg moment down the road at some point, we don't know when. Uh, Adorno is, um, I mean, I can uh, certainly understand the appeal because he's an amazing writer uh, and, and there's so much to be learned from his critiques of mass culture and popular culture. But he's also, for me, there's a fatalism there. There's a throwing up of one's hands. And yes, you could look at the 1960s situation um, and say, uh, and I can look at it and say, you know, in a way he was right. If your if you're imaginary of political change is another Bolshevik revolution, it's true, that didn't happen. So yeah, if I accept that you're that this, this catastrophic millenarian model of political, the only one that counts is this scorched earth, completely overthrowing everything that came before and starting from scratch. It's true, you know, okay, he was right. That did not come out of the 1960s in the way that he had, you know, so he predicted that correctly. But then for me, I have to go back and say, well, I don't know that I entirely agree with that as a model of political change. Uh, you know, and, and I mentioned this in the book, but 
I don't think that's really even what happened in Russia, to be honest. Uh, you know, the, the Russian Revolution was a gradual, incremental process that unfolded over decades before the explosion in St. Petersburg, which Lenin had almost nothing to do with. So, um, I part of my interest in in this question is an interest in what does the what does I ask my students this when I have seminars on active gay arts is what is your model of meaningful political change? Because so much of autonomy hinges on this as an a priori. Well, I don't really think anything can change. Okay, nothing can change. Then what is there left to do? Anything I try to do outside the institutional world will be instantly co-opted. And, and in fact, will be even worse than doing nothing because it will somehow be used to excuse the ongoing domination of the capitalist system. Well, the best I can hope for is to work within the conduit, within the network of bourgeois cultural institutions, the art world. Uh, Nicholas Brown has this whole uh, argument about genre in film, right? So this is, uh, for me, kind of peculiar argument that James Cameron's uh, Terminator is a critical anti-capitalist work, whereas Avatar is not because Terminator is more engaged with a self-reflexive critique of the genre of time-traveling films, which is, I w would agree with it. I just don't argue, I wouldn't maybe agree with the idea that it's a signifier of revolutionary consciousness of any kind, right? It's an interesting film and maybe subliminally Adorno would say in small little ways it changes somebody's awareness to have watched Terminator, but for me it's not a, but, but see, that's we're all the way back to the harmony of the faculties. We're, the, we're back to the play drive. Internal, uh, ostensibly imminent points of conflict or, or, or resistance against norms within the, the genre of a particular art practice stand in place for actual forms of resistance in the world. So they have this this syntagmatic function. Well, okay, and it's like Hal Foster with the institutional critique. Well, by critiquing, you can't, you know, critique the political and the in the outside world, but you can critique the institutional art world. And so, by acting out uh, this critique against artistic norms or institutional norms, that's the best we can hope for. And look, there's nothing wrong with that kind of work. I, I, there's a lot of institutional critique stuff that I really enjoy. the The problem that I have is. So often what comes out of that analysis is not simply to say, hey, if you're going to work in the institutional art world, here's a cool way to do it. It's the corollary, which is that, in fact, this is the only place in which criticality can be produced. And any practice that is not being developed in that context will fail. And that's that apophatic orientation, that kind of, I can only make it good art by pointing to something else that it's not like and is, it has to fail. And that, for me, bespeaks a lack of imagination about the nature of the political, especially in this day and age. And for me, that's kind of a, a, central, a central issue. Not so much the claims of it. Look, I, I get why people are, are, art historians really enjoy spending a lot of time writing about how radical artworks in the Venice Biennale are. I get it. I mean, let's understand it. We all tell our stories as historians and theorists. That's not a story that I tell. I, I can't prove that the work I write about is more political than the work you write about. I don't have a judgment about that. That's just what we do. We tell stories about these these practices and the, to the best of our ability and construct an argument around that story. Uh, but I, I don't find it convincing to then say, but everything everybody else is doing fails because they're not 
their political sensibility isn't advanced enough, or they're naively reformist. Because for me, there are just as many points of complicity working in the art world as there are working in the world of the social movements or political movements. They're just different points of complicity and compromise. So, yeah, this is a great point, actually. Uh, uh, that's my question to you. Uh, you pointed interesting uh, problems here. It's also the shifting the unions to moving to the, you know, to the campuses and universities. And it seems that the disruptions happen moving more and more to the, you know, the campuses and the, and of course the production, right? The, uh, the one production that these campuses are the theories, of course, is part of that practice. And it seems that, I don't know how much do you think that's also part of like perhaps the history of left. Well, yeah, I I think that's exactly right. You know, look at uh, Mexico City in 1968. That was, you know, middle-class university students in Mexico City that led the protests that, that were ruthlessly put down. There's a long history within middle-class culture and cultural institutions of really important forms of resistance. May 68 in Paris is primarily lower middle-class University students that were frustrated they couldn't get positions in universities because they were all over-enrolled and they wanted a better life. They weren't necessarily trying to have a Bolshevik revolution. They just wanted to have an education and get a job. So there, that can go many different ways. So um, I would say that what's in, what comes out of, say that, and you mentioned Adorno in this interstitial moment of the 60s and the 70s, is a changing notion of what revolution looks like. Now, you can argue, well, it's all reformist. Okay, fine, it's all reformist. But then you also have to have a paradigm of what the end game of your revolutionary or political version of change is. But what you see shifting in the 60s and the 70s happens on both the side of artistic practice and in social movements. You find social movements that are becoming much more attentive to uh, the role of culture, uh, cultural production, uh, uh, symbolic production. Think of the Black Panthers are a good example of that. They were super aware of self-fashioning, the, these performative gestures. There's a famous protest where they go to the California Capitol in Sacramento to protest the changing gun laws. It was directed at the Panther Party. Um, the style of dress. You see this in uh, Brown Berets, uh, uh, the American Indian Movement occupying Alcatraz, a performative dimension to these, social, these new social movements on the one hand. And then on the other side, in artistic practice, you see artists opening up their practice to elements within social movements, consciousness raising, which is central to feminism, is taken up by a figure like Suzanne Lacey, and is, she effectively stages consciousness raising as an artistic practice, but in a way that is actually, in some cases, operational, She'll develop projects that have real connections to policymakers and so on. So there's a there's a breaking. I just want to say there's a breaking down of some of these autonomous silos between theory and practice, art and political change, and so on. That comes out of this period. This is widely studied in uh, by historians of new social movements. Now. One argument is all the new social movements are naively reformist and predicated on you know naive ideas of identity politics and so on. They're not revolutionary and they never will be that sort of a thing. But for myself, I would argue that they are the seedbed of any kind of future politics has to begin with the individual. 
the individual body, the individual consciousness, and, and the forms of experience. That political change is not simply practical and pragmatic. To be governed by some kind of a priori theory, right, kind of a rectitude of a particular revolutionary theory, but that genuine insight comes out of the act of resistance. Creativity comes out of the act of resistance. We talked about the situation in Iran. It's exactly what you see happening. These improvisational gestures on the street. Real Talk about risk-taking performance. Forget about Chris Burden shooting himself in the arm. Like try knocking a turban off in the streets of Iran for a 60-year-old girl, right? That's That performative element is a feature of many social movements over the last 30 years. And for me, those are genuinely creative uh, 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 moments of insight. Now, did any one of them lead to a world revolution? Not any one of them, but my hope, this is my naivete, I guess, my hope is that the aggregation of these practices over time uh, hopefully gradually forming connections in ways, that's the best hope for me of, of meaningful political change. It's pretty bleak right now because we have neo-authoritarian movements all over the freaking globe, right? It feels quite hopeless, but I, I don't feel like the only solution is to go do institutional critique in, uh, you know, documenta. I think that there are significant... It, and so I would challenge the assumption that these practices don't, aren't creative, that they're not artistic, that they're not aesthetic. Because the aesthetic, this is always to me that oddness is claiming that there's a dif difference between the aesthetic and the ethical. The aesthetic basically claims to be the single engine of human emancipation. How can that not be an ethical claim? It just does it in a different way, right? So for me, for my allegiances, my experience, and, and so on, I find those the com that's a compelling direction for contemporary art practice. Does it mean everybody should get out of galleries? I know plenty of colleagues that do amazing work in galleries. That's fantastic. As I said before, the problem is this argument that it is only that work that possesses a political, a creative political insight, that it is only that work that preserves meaningful critical consciousness, the avant-garde and the avant-garde alone, as John Roberts will argue in his book. That's the part that I would disagree with. That, But to me, that's that binary again. And, and it, so it involves necessarily a kind of a, a crude, for me, a crude interpretation of existing forms of social change. And I refute the it logically, no, because I can point to any, I can point to the Arab Spring and say, well, look, what happened out of that? Oh, it was, this is reformist. The Black, uh, All Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter movement, what really changed? People, uh, black people are still being killed by cops with impunity and so on. You can easily have that mindset. And to me, that's kind of an Endorno mindset, right? And, and this is, <laughs> Lukács has this quote about Adorno in the Grand Hotel Abyss, right? I love that. Sitting in his chair, you know, in, in L.A., it, an exile from, you know, in L.A., so he doesn't, right? And just getting his pronouncements about the, the, the degritude of the world. Yeah, I get that. I'm, I can totally be like that. I can look around and just impute everything. For me, I, I just find that eventually a, a kind of a empty position to take up. I don't find it as compelling as the, the the more hopeful outlook that I try to have in my work. Yeah, something is interesting as you mentioned about this alternative paradigm, this you know the performative mode of action. But at 
to, to, to the extent that I understand very much, they use, I mean, these are per performative pieces. They did, I mean, if this, if we can call art or not, it's, I'm not going into that. That's <laughs> But but the thing is, it seems that there is a space opening because of the social movements happening. So that that's based on that you know ground, then you can see these performative they justify itself uh, without like uh, without uh, uh, institutional right uh, support here. Um, so let me let me say to that, uh, there are many gray zones. There's practices that are somewhat in the, it's not a black and white thing at all. There's practices that are partially in the art world and, and, and partially not in the art world and so on. And the second thing is, the, what I've heard for 20 and 30 years, why do you need to call it art? And so that's in part, that's in a way why I wrote the book in, in a sense to say, well, there's actually a 200 year genealogy of why to call it art. And this is, this is what it is. Now, it's art in a different way then you're used to thinking of art, but you don't own the copyright to art, whoever the theorist might be. Here's the thing I observe. Most of the people doing the projects I write about were artists. They might be artists working with activists or sociologists or whatever, but they said this work is part of my artistic... Uh, Patrice Coulours, the one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, I did an interview uh, with her in, uh, for Field, and she's a performance artist. And I said to her, I said, you know, what's the correlation? She said that there it's a continuum. So this is the dialogical hybridity. Of course, in these moments of intense social change, I feel like those silos start to break down a little bit. And you start to see this, this gray zone that freaks people out. We're well, not allowed to call that art. It's this or it's that or it's socialist realism. And I feel like it's not just socialist realism. We've, there's a different paradigm in which prefigurative experience creative experience and so on mean are really meaningful in the after resistance sorry i didn't mean to interrupt but no i think the, uh, your point is very much uh responding to my question because i was thinking like yeah most of it seems that there's in uh, this you know great moment of social uh, agitation but as you mentioned this is more complex it you see this kind of the gray zone as you mentioned I was thinking about this, some of these examples, and yeah, um, and I'm hopeful in, in also in your, in, in this book, you, you mentioned a couple of examples. Uh, I think you mentioned uh, Taller de Graffite Popular uh, uh, and the Theater of Working Class and, and other, ex some of these other examples about uh, the arts from decolonization. Uh, but in the, in the next works we will discuss, I think we can discuss more of these, uh, some of these examples. Um, yeah, I think maybe, you know, uh, to also discuss one of the examples of connection between institution and the social context, uh, you have a chapter on Hirschhorn's Gramsci monument. Maybe, maybe we can discuss, because that might be a good study case uh, to uh, to try some of these, you know, uh, notions and how he navigates, because he, I mean, the, the, the chapter struck me with the ways in which it's lay out the, the, the way that Hirschhorn, uh, deal with, I mean, an anticipated some of his critiques and also he, but it's very much how he navigate this, uh, 
Uh, maybe you can tell us more about this. Uh, also, that might be interesting also to think about the alternative paradigm because there, there is some, uh, you know, sim symptomatic aspect of this work that can help also the uh, understanding the alternative as well. Of course, yeah. I, I um, Yeah, I, I wrote about that work in, in depth. Well, one, because my... Uh, just uh, over time, the practice that I've developed as a historian or a critic is just, you know, to spend time with a project and to try to think it through and really ruminate on it. And I thought it lent itself in its complexity to a really deeper understanding. You know, what you tended to see were all these laudatory articles in the New Yorker and things about, oh, I went to the Gramsci Monument and there were young uh, kids, public housing kids playing in the fountains with art world types. And it was, it's literally the census communist. It's literally Schiller's fantasy of, of the classes, people combining, um, living together in peace and joy across boundaries of racial and class difference. And so that was super, that's what fueled a lot of the publicity, right? And, but for that to not seem naively problematic, it required Hirschhorn to, it really uh, fabricated an extremely complex discursive armature of staging the work. And that's what fascinated me is his performative self-fashioning of his work as an artist. And the, and the fact that um, uh, it's based on the work of, of Antonio Gramsci was super interesting because Gramsci's, so much of what Gramsci's theory is precisely about the potential of uh, what he called the subaltern, right? The, the, the oppressed, the poor, the working class in various contexts to, to be able to develop their own counter-hegemonic strategies. And so I, I felt it was quite odd to have this almost like reliquary of Gramsci's personal effects, like here's his slippers and stuff, and have some academics come and read about hegemony and think that that meant that signified some sort of meaningful communication of revolutionary theory that like it's a complete absence of mediation. You know, Adorno talks about mediation. I want to talk about it too and say, where's the mediation? Where was the point at which you said, if you really want to take Gramsci seriously, you go to the site. And, and instead of finding a site that would accept a white European guy to come in and, and create all this stuff, find a site where you feel that there is a connection to resistance, that you feel that there is a potential, a history of resistance or, or action that your work can contribute to in some way. And there might have been one in this site, but I don't believe that's what he was after because he has to have plausible deniability. Uh, you know, like Buclo says, oh, the art world people could come and go, how tragic that yet again, revolutionary theory was not able to make common cause with the masses in this housing project. Yes, because he made zero effort to actually do that. That was not his goal. His goal was to extract signifiers of what he called street credibility that could then be, and this sounds very cynical, so this is my cynical side talking, but basically monetized. Because if you look at the auction market for Hirschhorn's work, these things that he makes, these little constructions and sculptures and so on that come out of these public projects are extremely valuable. I'm not saying he's doing it to make money per se, but I'm saying that there is a, it's like an iceberg. There's underneath is a huge apparatus of selling and buying and reselling art objects in the art world. That the ultimate destiny, the reason why, when the resident said to him, gosh, it's gone and it's never coming back. And he's like, yes, it was a time limited thing. 
And I'm glad you enjoyed it, but see ya, I've got to go off to another city that's going to pay me to do the same thing all over again. The reason he can, in a way, say that is because he presents himself as an autonomous artist. I'm not here to help you. If you want to help me, you can. By the way, I have access to a half million dollar budget. It could provide jobs for unemployed people, but I'm not here to help you. We're just making art together. I found that profoundly disingenuous in certain ways. Uh, and so the fact that that project would then get embraced by, for example, October magazine, which is the, the kind of the bellwether uh, publication for this uh, avant-garde paradigm or neo-avant-garde paradigm is uh, fascinating to me because they have literally spent decades uh, criticizing community art practices in various forms, right? All the way back to Douglas Cripp in 1987, I remember when this happened, he did this AIDS the AIDS issue of October, and it was incredibly successful, probably the most successful issue ever, and they were shot. And he eventually was, as he describes it in interviews or described it, um, he was driven out of October because they, were, they did not want that. It goes all the way back to their founding editorial. Everything that's outside the institutional art world is socialist realism. And art begins and ends with a recognition of its conventions. That's in their fruiting editorial. So that's our, that's our algorithm right there. Imminent resistance against some kind of internal norm. And so for Hirschhorn to sell his work for those sums of money, he has to act that out. Except in his case, the norm he's pushing off against are naive versions of community art or the institutional art world being thrown into relief by the presence of this vibrant working class housing development. And those, con or, or Gramsci's theory and the failure of theory to produce revolutionary change, those conceptual oppositions are what are being presented in a way to an art world audience that is prepared to savor them. But the actual people get left as a kind of a symbolic resource. And again, as I say, you know, I'm sure from the interviews I've read, for a lot of people that was a residence, it was a rewarding experience. I don't want to say it was like, oh, it was entirely exploitative and so on. But I still found the methodology really problematic. For me, it's kind of an end, it's kind of a, 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 an endpoint paradigm for what happens to the neo-avant-garde uh, paradigm of the aesthetic which constantly requires new material to push off against. But what happened is institutional critique, it became evident that institutional critique was running out of juice. And so you, had to, you couldn't keep doing performances about how corrupt the museum or the gallery is. So you have to get outside. You have to out, do out kind of offshore sourcing for often signifiers of authenticity to, to employ, to push off against the institutional arm, to reveal the corruption of their institutional arm world, whatever the paradigm might be. And so he's kind of forced out of the gallery into these spaces, not forced literally, but he chooses to, because I think he has an intuition that you need to draw on this constant supply of material to engage with and to act out this kind of symbolic resistance. And so that's what happens. And that cannot help but be uh, instrumentalizing you know, for the people in the housing development. He talks about this in his, his notes. He talks about, I've got to find something with street cred. And there's that, that very poignant uh, description from a blogger about being at the Gramsci Monument. And he's talking to uh, some people about how the New York Police Department came to tell them they had to shut things down and how he stood up to them and, you know, told them, no, I'm not, I'm an artist. I, I'm not going to do that. 
And the person said it was almost as if he was saying that he was implying that if only the people in this forced houses, uh, housing development had that same bravura, that they would be more able to fight back against the forces of uh, police violence, which are quite profound in, in, in this neighborhood, in this area of New York City. And so there were a number of, for me, a number of, uh, I think, things that I, was, I recognized that seemed, as you said, symptomatic of this paradigm that I've been sketching out. And I thought, especially because this project commanded so much attention, uh, really uh, launched uh, or dramatically extended the careers of a number of curators and was widely covered with very little negative coverage. I thought, there's something at work here, uh, whereby all of these figures who spent so much time developing a notion of the avant-garde that ex precisely excludes things like kids doing workshops and uh, having a community radio station. These are exactly the abject forms of community art that advanced art is defined against. How is he going to square that circle? And so I was fascinated really in a way to unpack that a little bit to reveal, hopefully for me, at least some of the underpinnings of that discursive structure. So that was the, you know, I'm not trying to be uh, uh, super negative about his work. He, I'm sure it's for many people it's valuable and so on. But for me, it really was more symptomatic in that sense. Yeah, I mean, I remember this is, there is a one uh, footage in the interview he gave in Art 21. And I mean, the, the image still in my mind, it's just stuck with me. He, he was scolding people uh, for not participating. And to me, it was like, Exactly. This is like a gig economy. Like you should participate. There is no way. Like it's like it's, it's just like you know. Uh, it it is. I know. It's a, that, there's that incident with the song that people don't want to work anymore, and he's like haranguing them, and they say that you don't love anything but your but your art. And he says that's true, and they all laugh. Well, I don't know if they all laugh necessarily, but that's the way it's reported. Like they're supposed to learn from him how to be a possessive individualistic artist or or something like that. That kind of became this. That's why I call it the Hirshhorn Monument. I feel like so much of it was about him, his personality as a model or a paradigm for that, especially the young people in that housing development to to embrace or, or whatever. And I I thought that was, you know, intensely um, for me, intensely problematic in a number of ways. But yeah, uh, I, I know it's. Uh, it's an interesting, it's an interesting and and uh, uh, revealing project in a lot of ways, and and for me, it's like it gets into the zone of the kind of practices that I've written about, and so it's a for me a nice jumping off or segue between the first and the second books because I end on like, oh, well, here's the limit condition of what an avant-garde paradigm can do in that world, bring along with it all the apparatus of I'm an I am an uh, uh, I did have unshared authorship I am a you know, he, Hirshhorn begins in the Atelier Populaire, which is a post-May 68 graphic, it's a May 68 graphic studio that did street posters, uh, protest street posters. And he leaves precisely because, as he says, he, he feels like it's his, his individual freedom was being impinged on too much by the demands of, of, the, uh, of, of this at, more activist-oriented group. So from the earliest stages, he's been, I think, trying to grapple with artistic autonomy in, in that man. That's why it's so interesting as a project, though. Yeah, it is. I think, yeah, that's that was very also helpful to see how the, the, these ideas of like autonomy still played out in this problematic way, uh, perhaps. Um, yeah, maybe we, we can uh, 
wrap up here. Uh, I want to thank you, uh, Grant, for taking your time. That was a great conversation, and I think that's also useful for me and the audience. Uh, thank you very much. Great. It was my pleasure, and thanks again for the invitation. Merci. So uh, to, to our listeners, we hope to have a following conversation after these interviews on the second volume, Beyond the Sovereign Self, Aesthetic Autonomy from Dalbongar to Social Engage Art. Please stay tuned.